All right, well, today we are in Mark chapter 13. I bet you there were some of you waiting for this day, weren't you? Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, 1 to 37. We are going to do the whole chapter today. So if you can, please stand for the reading of God's word. If you want to remain seated, that's up to you. Uh, But if you want to stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to read the whole chapter. And uh, so follow along on the screens if you need to as well. Here we go. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when all When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines, These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days." And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, 
keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight, when a cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say, I say to you all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, today, if you summarize the entire passage, I think you can summarize it with these few words. Be on your guard, watch out. Okay? Be on your guard, watch out. Uh, This is one of those passages which are extremely difficult to understand, uh, much less interpret. Many pastors would go right over this spot. I wanted to, but I'm here, and I'm going to teach you from here what I believe Jesus has to say. Uh, most scholars and commentators agree that this passage in Mark is one of the more difficult in the, in the New Testament. And when we read a passage like this, looking forward to events it is describing, events yet to take place, many of them, it's important to remember that we don't have all the answers. God does. He's the only one that has all the answers. Now, I chose to lump this whole discourse of Jesus into one sermon. It, it was a lofty goal, let me tell you, because there is a lot in here. We could spend probably a couple weeks here. But we need to think deeply on Scripture. Uh, We need to dig into it. We need to dissect it. And and those are good things. And God's Word is always going to stand up to our scrutiny. But but sometimes I think we look so closely at the minutiae that we miss the big, glaring message shining right to us like neon lights in our face. We often squint through those neon lights in order to see the details that are behind it. The details are fuzzy and they're broken up and indecipherable because there's big neon lights right there shining in our face. And we can't see what's behind there very clearly. So when we look for the minutiae, we often misinterpret the minutiae because those big neon lights are in our face so so there. So uh, we miss what they're saying. And the big neon lights are saying, this is what I want you to know. And that's the important thing to take away. Now, there are a number of doctrines in the Bible which are difficult to understand, and I would go so far as to say impossible for us humans to fully comprehend. Things like the sovereignty of God and the will of man, or God's election in, in our choice, or end times for, falls in, the place, in that place for me. And often when trying to figure these incomprehensible things out, we get so caught up in the minutia that we miss the big picture of what God's trying to tell us. So today we're going to look at the big picture of what Jesus is saying. I'm not going to preach about point times viewpoint. Disappointed uh, by that. Uh, please don't let your disappointment in that uh, make uh, uh, hinder you from seeing what Jesus is really trying to get at here in this passage. Uh, Mark and Jesus are both saying something very important for us as a church to hear. Um, I believe Mark and Jesus are not giving us an eschatological timeline or a schedule of events for the last days as much as they're admonishing us, the reader remain faithful, disciples until the end. The author of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author, the founder, and perfecter of our faith. The thrust of this passage is for disciples of Jesus to be alert and watchful. You see that verse 5, 
13, verse 37. It's all through there. It's alert and watchful. And then we, as, we the disciples, are warned not to be led astray by claims that Christ has or is coming or by even the most incredible signs or wonders that could happen. And he says that in verse 5 and 6 and 21. So he's saying, be warned. Don't, don't be led astray. And then three times Jesus says, you do not know when the time will come. Three times. Jesus clearly says, no one knows the hour or the day. He himself did not know the timetable. Furthermore, Jesus did not encourage his disciples to try to figure out or predict when that hour or day would be. He suggests actually the opposite. Focus on remaining faithful disciples in the present so we are prepared for when the Son of Man comes for us. Now, could Jesus come back today? Absolutely. And I would love it if he did. It would all be ended. It would be wonderful. Could it be another hundred years? We don't know. We honestly don't know. Instead of trying to figure it out, let's be faithful to follow Jesus in whatever circumstances befall us, whether they're good or bad or prosperity or poverty and comfort or in suffering and trials or adversity, we are to stay true to Jesus and follow him. Now, a few other things to keep in mind as we, as we go into this passage today. The original audience, and we've, we've been going back to this a lot, but it's important to remember who the original audience was. It was, it was Roman Christians suffering persecution and mocking and death. And, and they were, like this would be, trying to stay true to Jesus, but wondering what that meant in context and wondering if it was worth it all. And then the next thing is the incredibly important immediate context in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, had confrontation with the evil and wicked religious leaders in the temple. And we looked at that last couple weeks. And, and this is followed by Jesus' warning about the scribes and the condemnation that they would receive. And then all that Jesus says in the passage today is on the heels of and response to regarding his prophecy that the temple would be destroyed. So that's the immediate context. And then there's a larger context of Mark, the whole gospel. It's been teaching us that Jesus is Son of Man, from Daniel chapter 7. And Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple, the church. And Jesus is the king of God's kingdom, which will shatter in pieces all the worldly and evil kingdoms and empires. His kingdom will be forever. And this would have been a hopeful thing for those Christians suffering under violent, abusive, and evil Roman rule. It's like it is a hopeful thing for us to look forward to, and not with a, a good way a time when we may, may very well be living under similar conditions. So I think this is for us to hear as well. And the point of Jesus' exhortation is to answer, how does a follower of Jesus live in that type of environment? What keeps a disciple going in the midst of chaos and wickedness and, and just uh, judgment? And the answer is, we live in expectant and confident trust in God's sovereignty and the the authority of the Messiah, Jesus, to work all things according to the purpose that he has designed for it. That is a hopeful thing that we get to live in. So let's take a closer look at this, uh, at, at this passage of what Jesus has to say. So start in verse 1 and 2. And Jesus and disciples leave the temple. It's a beautiful structure. It's a wondrous sight. The historian Josephus describes the temple as having a circumference of nearly a mile, enclosing 35 acres of land. The southwest corner of the retaining wall hung 15 stories above the ground. 
It was massive. Some of the stones of the temple were enormous, measuring 42 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet deep. That's approximately one half of this room is just one stone. That stone would weigh over a million pounds. And that's just the foundation of this temple. The royal portico, there were three rows of Corinthian columns rising 40 feet into the air and supporting a huge ceiling. And Josephus reports the thickness of each column was such that it would take three men with outstretched arms touching uh, fingertip to fingertip to go around just one of those columns. It was massive. It was, the temple gleamed with gold and silver and, and amazing, colorful tapestries. And I can imagine it being late in the afternoon, the sun is setting, the sky is red and orange and purple and blue, and all those brilliant colors are gleaming off of the stones and off of the gold and the silver and the tapestry, and it looked magnificent. An incredible wonder constructed for the glory of God. Or not so much. Herod the Great constructed it for the glory of his majesty and, and to appease the Jews. And as we saw last week, the inner workings of the temple were as materialistic as the outer shell was. But the disciples look at it, and they say, wow, what a beautiful place. Many years ago, Kelly and I visited Notre Dame over there in, in, in Paris, and man, it was amazing. I know it's nothing like the temple was, but it was beautiful. We looked at the architecture, and we're like, how did they do that? And I can see the disciples saying the same thing. How in the world could they have done this? They're impressed by the beauty. And Jesus wasn't impressed. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Like the fig tree, it will wither to its roots. No one will ever eat fruit from it again. And 40 years later, the Romans invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And they burned it to the ground at Caesar's order. And they leveled the temple complex, turning over the foundation stones in order to pillage the gold and the silver that had melted down into the cracks fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. So that happened. Then we get to verse 3. There's signs. The, the, the disciples ask for signs. They continue their walk in the late afternoon and they arrive at the top of Mount of Olives. And Jesus sits down opposite the temple. It's a position of authority and judgment. And if you want to look at the first fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. Jesus sits on, on the Mount of Olives. And it stood above Jerusalem. And it's said that from the vantage point of the Mount of Olives that you could, you could look into the sanctuary. And Jesus sat on the mount and he looked down upon the beautiful temple that he knew would be destroyed in a few short years. And as he said, four disciples privately asked him two questions. Tell us, when will all these things be? What you just said, it's going it's to fall. So when is this going to happen? And then what will be the sign these things will be accomplished. Okay, so you just said it's going to be destroyed, so when will that be? And tell us what we need to look for in order for that to take place. Jesus answers their questions, but interestingly enough, he reverses the order. First he talks about the signs, and then he answers a whole bunch of other things that they didn't ask, and then he gets to the when, way at the end of the passage. And I believe that Jesus had two events in mind as he made his predictions and his warnings. The destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 was one, and then the second coming of Jesus at the end of the age, which has not yet come. So the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 was a foreshadowing, a miniature example, so to speak, of the final destruction of all evil at Jesus' second coming at the end of the age. 
So Jesus' prophecy has a double fulfillment, that one that would be fulfilled in the near future and one that would be fulfilled at the end of times. And Jesus, like many prophets before him, speaks concerning two events as if they are, as if they are one and transitions fairly quickly between the two of them. So Jesus follows a pattern of many of the prophets before him in the Old Testament. And it also seems that Jesus sort of jumps back and forth. So 80, 70 to the last days. But I would, I would suggest to you that it's more like describing a couple of mountains from the distance. I don't know if you've ever been out west and seen the mountains and you're driving through Nebraska and you see the mountains off in the distance. You look at those mountains and except for the shades of blue, they look equal distant on the horizon until you get upright to them and you, you realize that one mountain is miles in front of the other one. And the one that's behind is even more taller and more majestic than the front one. And I think prophecy can be like this. The prophets would describe what they were thinking was one event, but it was really two events. And Jesus knew it was two events, but he's, he's putting them both together. And God was revealing much more than what the prophets were aware of. And, and Jesus is revealing a lot here. In the beginning of our passage, Jesus talks about a tragedy and then how they, the listeners, were to respond. This is in verses 5 and 6 and, and so on. The tragedy, there will be wars, there will be rumors of wars, but this is not the sign. The response is, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. See that in verse, verse 7. It says, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This is part and parcel to living in a fallen, evil world. This is the normal human wickedness at work. And there's another tragedy. Kingdom will rise against kingdom and earthquakes and famines will happen. This is not the sign. These are only the beginnings of birth pains. These are not the full-blown birth pains. The response, what does he say? Verse 9, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Paul says this in Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Same type of imagery that Jesus was using here. And a warning that overshadows both events and applies to all readers is this. Beware of those who misuse signs to get you to go astray. See in verse 5. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And then he goes into all those things. So beware of those who use signs to get you to go astray, to get you to follow something other than Jesus. Whether that's a particular nation, such as Israel or the U.S., whether that's a religion or an idolatrous belief system such as mysticism or globalism, whether that is a political figure or a religious guru claiming to be the hope of the world, another Messiah, if it takes your eyes off Jesus, do not believe it, verse 21. Do not be led astray, verse 5. Be on your guard, verse 9. Stay awake, verse 33. We're going to see this theme come out. Now a little more, a little more concerning signs down verse 9 through 13. When I read through most of the New Testament, or through the New Testament, I do not find encouragement for us to seek signs and attempt to interpret them. The Pharisees saw, uh, sought a sign back from Jesus in, in chapter 8, verse 11, remember? And, and Jesus did not have uh, a good things to say for them or give them a sign. He said he wouldn't give them one. In verse 33, Jesus says, we do not know the time or the season when the end will come, and, and neither does he encourage us to try to decipher when it will be. Instead, he commands us to be awake and to be on our guard. 
And this is the same line of thought, the same type of thinking that Paul takes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. I'm not going to read it all, but listen to this. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's going to come unexpectedly, just like Jesus is describing. While people are saying there's peace and prosperity, then sudden destruction will come upon them as, get this, labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Jesus is using similar language. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So Paul and and Jesus are both saying the same thing. When it comes to end times, be awake, be sober, be vigilant, stay focused on Jesus. Paul goes on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken, not to be, not to be stirred, not to be like agitated or worked up. He says, not to be quickly shaken in mind or, get this word, alarmed. Same word Jesus said here. He said, don't be alarmed. And Paul's saying the same thing. Don't be alarmed when things are going bad. Same exhortation as Jesus. Either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seem to come for us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Same reminder that Jesus was giving. And then in Acts chapter 1, so it's believed that Luke wrote the, 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 the book of Acts. Another author, we have Jesus, we have Paul, and now we have Luke saying, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the idea is that it's not for us to know the times. We're to be about telling others of who Jesus is. In other words, Jesus was saying that these cataclysmic events that he's describing in these first few verses will take place. But when they do, don't let people deceive you with interpreting them as signs. The point of end times teaching and preaching point of Jesus prophesying the destruction of the temple and his second coming is not so we can make charts and graphs and plans and curriculums and guesses and predictions regarding the future. This details, uh, details about Jesus' return and end times is not meant to be a doctrine of division and dispute, which is often the case in a church. I've seen so many people divide over it. Its purpose is to give us something to look forward to and to encourage one another with It is meant to keep us alert and our eyes on Jesus and his coming. That's the purpose of this type of exhortation. Jesus is coming. All comes to an end. We will see him and he will reign. In the meantime, we're to do what he asked us to do. Live for him. Don't be deceived and be witnesses of him and his life-changing message. The message of his glory comprised of all nations. Anyone can come. Verse 13, Jesus is saying, here's what you should concern yourself with. Don't be surprised. Be on your guard. Be ready. When big things happen, like verses 5 through 8, they actually may start blaming you. 
They will deliver you over. They will betray you. They will lie about you. These betrayers will be family members, trusted friends and confidants. And those hurt when people close to you betray Turned over to the authorities because people will be lying about us. This is what he's saying. They will say all kinds of crazy and chaotic things. And they will point fingers at the followers of Jesus, pinning the evils of society on us. You can read about it in the book of Acts. It still happens today. An exam- some examples. Things like this. Natural disasters. He talks about earthquakes and things in here. Natural disasters. Global warming. Overpopulation. Depletion of natural resources is an at an all-time high. The end is near, right? See, we can prove it. There's earthquakes and famines and wildfires and hurricanes two at once, right? Tsunamis, record heat waves. We need what? Science to save us. If you believe in God and not in science, then you are the enemy. Community gatherings. Christian communities are the problem. Those who teach the way of Jesus are causing Sickness and death and disruption to our society. They are spreading an incurable disease. They judge us, they condemn us, they hate us. If they loved us, they would stay at home and keep us safe. If they loved us, they would, they would say, uh, like they say they do, then they would accept our sinful, testable lifestyles. Put them, find them, beat them, shoot them. Authority. All authority and law and order is tyranny. We want freedom. Freedom to do what we want, think as we want, and believe as we want. The traditional family structure is archaic. It's abusive. It's oppressive. Let's dismantle it. Unborn or old will be around only so long as we need you or want you. Gender structures and roles are oppressive and unfair and, are, and archaic and unenlightened. Let's remove gender altogether, and we will never have to deal with it again. Government structures are cumbersome and restrictive. We want to be able to kill and to hate and abuse and get high and get drunk and to steal and under loot. Let's remove all government authority by force. And God, who's that? We don't need him. He's a killjoy who has fun and pleasure. We don't need something to do down here on earth. We'll take care of ourselves, thank you. We're going to remove God from our lives altogether. And anyone who stands for God for his definition of family and gender and government and God himself will be persecuted and betrayed and put to death. It happened all through the book of Acts. And if you think I'm kidding, look at the history of the church. In fact, look around at what's going on right now in our society and our world. And Jesus' words are entirely appropriate. Be on your guard. Don't be led astray. Stay awake. These are the fundamentals of who we are as Christians. Stay awake point of the portion of this portion is this beware that they will speak evil of you don't be alarmed don't be surprised it's okay it's happening so that the gospel can go forth verse 10 and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations first peter 3:14-16 but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Do not be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that's in you. Jesus Christ is our hope. We will go through those trials so that God can put us in places where we can proclaim his truth to those who need it the most. 
This has been true in the church down through the ages and centuries. It's our calling and it's Jesus' command. Proclaim the gospel to all nations and make disciples for Jesus. When we obey, we'll be hated for his name's sake, but his gospel will go forth in that very situation. And he says at the end of this portion, he says, and he who endures to the end will be saved. We're not called to defeat evil or change the world. We're not called to usher in God's kingdom. We are called to do only what we're capable of doing. Endure to the end while sharing the good news of Jesus. And the promise is that we will be made whole. Now we get to the the end times part. Verse 14 to 31. Now, Now we come to the most difficult verses and the most difficult passages in the New Testament to understand. And many of you be thinking, well, he's talking about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel uh, in the prophet in Daniel chapter 9 and 11 and chapter 12, to which I would say you are correct. And the question is, did these events already happen or, or will they happen in the future? And what is more intriguing is, is that Mark adds, let the reader understand, right? Uh, why did he add that when this whole passage is so hard to understand? Anyone with me on that? There are two fulfillments, I believe. First fulfillment in the prophecy that Titus invaded and captured Jerusalem in AD 70. He and his troops stood in the temple and they lit it on fire, thus destroying it, bringing it to desolation. It was an abomination to have the Gentiles standing in the temple sanctuary and it's brought about that desolation. So raising the temple to rubble was part of the abomination of desolation. Fleeing Judea and the housetop and all that stuff that would support the first fulfillment that took place in AD 70. However, when Jesus changes the tone of his prophecy in verse 19 to in those days, this would support the end times fulfillment. So there's still something to be fulfilled yet. And, and it also would seem that way because the time of tribulation that he describes here seems to be global and not an isolated thing to Israel and to Judea. So the final fulfillment of this prophecy will happen, I believe, in the end times, in accord with Second Thessalonians, let no one deceive you in any way. Second Thessalonians, Paul says this: "For that day will come." Again, he starts. You, for that day will not come unless the rebellion first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So there will be a lawless and who will come and set himself up in, in the temple proclaiming God. How will this happen? What temple is Paul talking about? Now, although I've heard all kinds of speculations and interpretations, I just don't know. I hope you're okay with that. I don't know. Jesus said, may no one eat fruit from you again, as he prophesied the destruction of the temple and its riches. And it was destroyed in 8070, and the temple has never been rebuilt. Was the abomination completely fulfilled in 8070? We don't know, not necessarily sure. We are guessing because none of us knows the future. I don't believe that Jesus wants us to necessarily of desolation happens. We will know it when we see it. Jesus says in verse 5, let the reader understand. So as followers of Jesus, we will not be guessing. His spirit reveal to us what we need to know we need to know it. In verse 11, when he says, when you stand before the king, give you the things to say. It will be clear and 
obvious because we are awake and on our guard, following us, and we'll know because he, we will see it and he will reveal it to us. A few important terms that stick out to me in this passage. The word elect. And without making any interpretations, I want to point out that there is a horrible time of tribulation, and the reason that the short cuts the tribulation short of the elect. And during this time of tribulation, there will be many who will claim to be the Messiah, and they will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But in those days, a clue that he is talking about times, after the tribulation, he says, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man will come in clouds with great power and glory. Another reference to Daniel 7. And then he will set out his angels, gather the elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And it sounds similar to what Paul says when he's speaking to the church in Thessalonica. He says this in Thessalonians 4. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so Jesus, God, will bring him with him, those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the Himself will descend from heaven with a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then what does he say when he ends this passage? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is our hope. The word elect is used in Mark's passage in this passage three times. And these are the only times this word is used in the entirety of Mark's gospel. This same term is used in, in Paul and Peter is to refer to believers in Jesus, the church. Jesus is talking to the elect. If any to deceive you or get you to follow them as the Messiah instead of me, he's saying, do not believe it, be on your guard. And he talks about false Christs and antichrists. In the end times, there will be great deception of the Antichrist. In Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul again says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception. There's this deception again. In 1 John chapter 2, John now says, Children, it is the last hour. And he's writing this to, to believers like you and me. This is the last hour. And as you have heard that, Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. I write these things to you about those who are trying to what? Deceive you. You see the theme going through here. Don't be deceived. Don't be taken off course. Follow Jesus. Both now and in the end times, many so-called believers will be deceived and follow after evil powers and spirit of Antichrist. And there's that theme of not being deceived, staying alert, keeping our eyes on Jesus. And then there's this idea of tribulation. Verse 19 to 31 speak about the end times and this great last days of tribulation. And it's going to be horrible so that God will shorten it for the sake of the elect. There will be deceivers and false Christs performing wonders and leading many astray if possible, even the elect. 
And after the tribulation, verse 24, notice that these are not indicators of a coming tribulation, but indicators that the tribulation is almost over and the Son of Man will come. More than likely, there are both physical and metaphorical interpretations to these cataclysmic events. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give light. Stars will fall from heaven. Stars are often metaphorical of kings and rulers. Powers in the heavens will be shaken. These are often uh, metaphorical of demons and principalities, and it's going to be shaken. The whole cosmic world is going to be shaken. And then there's that Son of Man again. Then after the tribulation, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And this is again a, a reference to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. And then he will send his angels to gather his elect, the chosen, his church, and the lesson the fig tree is inserted here. When the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. When you see all these things taking place, know that he is near. And he says this generation, and this word means, uh, like we think of it, a specific age group, but a born during a specific time, but it also could mean more, an age or a period of time. And my belief is that he's talking about the elect, those who are born again by the Spirit. In this generation, the church will not pass away until all these things have taken place. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. And listen to Isaiah 51. I think he's making a, an allusion there. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. There is hope and there is life in the words and the gospel of Jesus. In all of this, I think Jesus is focusing on what is most important. He does not mention a number of things that typically cause divisions in our church. He doesn't mention a, a millennium or a new Jerusalem or a temple or a state of Israel or a battle of Armageddon or rapture or any of those things. He mentions simply what is important. Jesus will come again and gather all of his elect, all the corners of the world and heaven, to himself. He's going to bring us all together to himself. Jesus is going to come again for us. What does that say to us? We take away all the smoke screens and all that stuff. What does that say to us? I would submit to you that what matters is being ready for when Jesus comes. And come he will. The warning, the expectation, is to don't be deceived, be on your guard, and be ready. And now finally we get to the when. The question everybody wants to know the answer to. Verse 32 to 37. And finally Jesus answers the first question of the four disciples. When will these things be? And from the mouth of Jesus, no one knows. Not the angels or the Son. I find that fascinating. So since no one knows then what are we supposed to do? I believe 33 is the focal point of this entire passage. It's all been focused on this verse. Be on your guard and why? Why? Precisely because you do not know when the time will come. And now Jesus gives us a parable. And the actors in the parable correlate to things in real life and in real time. He says, like a man going on a journey. Remember, Jesus, when, the time had, when his time was done, after he had resurrected, he ascended into heaven. He leaves his servants in charge. 
And Jesus left his apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers in Ephesians chapter 4. Each with his work or his task. And Jesus through the Spirit has given each gifts, each of us in the church, gifts that we are to use for the work of the ministry. And he commands the doorkeeper, the gatekeeper to watch. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I believe that Jesus is talking about us and to us, the church. And the simple application of the parable, and by implication, all of Jesus' prophecy is this. Watch. Be aware. Watch what's going on around you. It's said three times in verse 33 and 35 and 37. We've learned that repetition, especially three, signals importance. Stay awake. Vigilant, be awake, be watchful, cautious. And he says three times as well, you do not know. You do not know. And verse 33 and 37 are saying the same thing. This is the point Jesus is trying to hammer home. Watch, stay awake, don't be deceived. Be on your guard, persevere. Why? So verse 10 so we can bear witness to Jesus' saving work before them. We don't watch, we don't stay awake so we can run and so we can avoid what's to come. We watch and we stay alert and persevere so that the gospel can be proclaimed to all nations. The gospel of Jesus' saving work and his kingdom that's come. We watch and we stay awake and we're ready to give an answer of the hope that's in We witness to the saving power of his death and resurrection of Jesus and we warn folks of of his return. Every time we read a passage in the New Testament concerning the imminence of Jesus' return, we see the same point, uh, this point of alertness and readiness is in that passage. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we're to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. We saw in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're to be sober and put on the breastplate of righteousness and not deceived, but to stand firm and to hold fast. And the point of Jesus' prophecy from start to end is for us to be alert and to be ready. The very first word in Jesus' prophecy is see, to look to, to behold, to beware. And the last word in in his prophecy is watch, stay awake, be vigilant. And I'll close with this verse. James 5, 7 to 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Armor waits for the pressure of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And here's the encouragement. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't wait. Don't think that you have time to, to live life to the fullest, how you want to, and then, and then you'll get your act together for him later on. No. Follow Jesus today. You don't know when he's coming. You don't want to be caught sleeping, indifferent to Jesus. You want to be watchful and eager for his return, so we wait in obedience to him, loving God with all that we are, loving our neighbors as ourselves, being generous with our belongings and eager for his return serving one another, witnessing of the power of Jesus' resurrection in our lives. The time is now. God says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord and be on guard, watch out, don't wait, follow Jesus, 
today. You don't have necessarily uh, security that knowing that you have tomorrow. No one knows the time. And you're to encourage one another with these words. Jesus is coming. He's going to make it all good. And those are wonderful words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you teach us. Lord God, may we just be ready. Make us ready for when Jesus comes. We want to be watching. We want to be about loving you and loving our neighbors and caring for one another and sharing your gospel message with everyone we come in contact with. That's what you call us to. Help us to be bold in doing that. Help us to obey. Help us to be watchful vigilant and alert so we can share the hope of Jesus with everyone that we meet. Thank you for all those in this room. Thank you that they love you and they want to follow you. Make this part of who they are, this vigilance, this readiness for when you come and take us home to live with you forever. May we encourage one another with this. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.